<laughs> okay, let's try this again. Greetings. Hey. Well, that's kind of how the week has gone, so. Happy blustery morning. Uh, I trust you all had a good night's sleep uh, in roughly two-hour increments. Between wind gusts and clanging and banging, and, uh, but here we all are, awake enough, hopefully, um, to continue in our series in the book of Colossians. We have a lot of ground to cover today, lots, lots of stuff, so we're just going to jump right in. Let's start with prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we are grateful to be here this morning. It's, uh, um, this is always an interesting time of the year. There's so much obvious change going on, and... Uh, the weather is changing, and maybe our moods are changing, and somehow we think we can manipulate time and change that too, and it, it all just uh, adds to a, a perhaps a season of um, disconcertment, uncertainty. Uh, we know that the, that the holidays coming up are going to make things busier and more hectic, and, and so we pray, Lord, this morning for this time that we have together um, to spend time in your word. We know that we are grateful uh, for the fact that you are unchanging, that your word is unchanging, that it, it was, is, and will be true forever. So bless our time this morning as we go through your word and what you have to, uh, for us to hear, that we, we take what we need, um, we uh, figure out the application for our own life on what we hear this morning. There's, there's a lot here to consider. So I just pray that we keep our, our ears and our hearts open as we go through, uh, and we are grateful again for this time to gather together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so there's a lot of ground here in today's text that we have covered in previous letters that Paul has written, um, but we're going to cover them anyway because we need to hear them again and again. Uh, so we're now in the last half of the four chapters of Colossians, and as we are all now well aware, Paul's letters to the churches, and this is the fourth one we've looked at this year, uh, Paul's letters generally consist of Two united and, and complementary, but kind of distinctly different kinds of sections or, or types of teaching. The first half of his letters uh, consists largely of what we've come to call orthodoxy. And we didn't make that up. That's like a real term that people use. Uh, it's orthodoxy. Uh, is it, not a word that's used in the Bible, but we use it to refer to a belief in the standards of accepted and true doctrines that are taught in the Bible. That is orthodoxy. So as Paul, who, who was an evangelist to the Gentiles first, but also to the Jews, as Paul uh, became aware of problems or potential issues that were, were surfacing in some of these churches, he wrote letters to them to, to explain to them, to remind them of what were the accepted and true doctrines of the church. Building on, perhaps, what they knew from the Old Testament books that they had. And he also shared some new understandings, new, new ways of looking um, at the Word of God, at the life of Christ that had been divinely given to him. And now it's his job to disseminate and share. So he taught about uh, the right beliefs about creation, for example. We've seen that in other letters. He taught about the character and nature of God over and over and over again. Specifically, he taught about the salvation that has been offered to all men through Jesus Christ. And all of that comes under the orthodox heading. This is kind of what you need to believe. And that's how, Paul, that's how Paul began each letter, teaching the true doctrine, correct beliefs. And then the second half of his letters largely deal with orthopraxy, where Paul teaches the Christians how we are to live, how we are to live consistently within the, 
parameters or, or the guidelines of orthodoxy. Having right beliefs ought to compel us to live rightly. I mean, correct or good behavior is based on correct or good beliefs. Now, to be sure, this is where it can get a little confusing. Confusing. There are a lot of good people who do a lot of good things without believing in God. But a holy and perfect God is not impressed by our good works. No matter the quantity of our good works, no matter the frequency of our philanthropy, our good works will never compensate for our sin. So we need to put our faith in Christ. We need to find forgiveness of sins. And then we are called to live in a way that is correctly ordered and is God-pleasing. And you can only live rightly, that is, in a God-pleasing way, if you have, if you, if you believe in, if you've committed to right beliefs. It's a package deal. Genuine beliefs will lead to right actions. Paul has often referred to this, as we've seen, as walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Matching our stated beliefs with our lifestyle and our choices, it's, it's kind of a practice-what-you-preach kind of idea. Now, I know, at this point in our series, through Paul's epistles, this is the fourth letter we've looked at, we've heard this orthodoxy, orthopraxy, you know, one or two or 20 times. And we repeat it, Paul repeats it, because it is important. Paul lays out his letters in this form for a reason. Scripture is clear that man lives better when he lives rightly. Living our lives according to God's will will always be better than living our lives according to our will. Even if we can't quite see it. When we build our lives on a firm foundation of biblical truth, when we strive to please God, we end up with this nice, firm, solid structure. Built on orthodoxy, building up, living out through orthopraxy, we have a firm, solid structure, a good, solid, God-honoring life built on truth. Now, Conversely, there are lots and lots, many, many verses that speak to man's keen ability, our curse really, to do what we think is right. With little input or little concern for what God's will is in any particular area or in any particular issue. For example, Proverbs 14, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. That seems kind of heavy. Proverbs 12, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Judges 21, in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We kind of know how that ended, right? It did not go well. Proverbs 26, do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. So if we reject orthodoxy, if we reject right beliefs about God, if we live according to what we determine is right, if we follow this pattern, the results are... Not all that surprising. <clears throat> so Paul's goal throughout all these letters, uh, all these different letters to all these different believers in all these different cities was to help them. Help us believe in, have faith in, be controlled by the right things. And that is the truth of God's revealed word. And then he encourages us to order our lives in such a way so that we live consistently within this spiritual framework so that our spiritual structures are sound. So we've seen over the last couple of weeks, Paul, in 
along these lines, Paul has spoken out against all the man-made versions of religion. Those aren't going to help you, as it turns out. Uh, those that are heavy on rule-keeping, those that are heavy on legalism. Paul has spoken out against false teachers and the ear-pleasing philosophies of men. And Paul even says, these have the appearance of wisdom. They may sound wise, and most of them require works or behaviors of some kind, but they are of no value. God remains unimpressed by all of these works because they're not based on God's word. So seek Christ. Find the new life offered by Christ. Find forgiveness. Find redemption and hope in Christ. That's what makes all the difference. That's the first half. And then Al covered, starting in verse 3-1, this orthopraxy section where he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So you see there, there's, a, there's a change here. There's a, there's a change in direction implied, a change in focus. If we've been raised with Christ, we should seek the things above, which implies that before we were raised with Christ, we generally sought after lesser, lower things. But by rightly believing that Jesus died for our sins, by accepting his gift of grace through salvation, this change occurs. A change that will fundamentally and necessarily, for true believers, affect your life and your lifestyle. Which is what I all covered last week. If, if we've been raised with Christ, then in verse 5 he said, we are called to put to death these earthly things. Uh, and that was kind of a list of ought-nots. Here are the things you ought not do if you've been raised with Christ. Sexual immorality. Kind of a big category in and of itself. Uh, put away passion and evil desire. Pretty big sin buckets unto themselves. And then Paul goes on to say, put away anger, slander, obscene talk, don't lie to one another. Put away those sins. Why? Because you're putting off the old self. Those are associated with the old self. That was part of the old you. That was part of the, uh, not part of the new sin-forgiven, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled you. So you've got to put those things away. Now, I was going back over this section last week to prepare for this week's text. And something struck me as I went and read through it again. It didn't strike me the first 48 times I read it. But this time, I was reading through, and the, the three puts that Paul had in that section really kind of jumped out at me. After I put things in tables or charts, I put it in a table, a chart, and I laid it out and went, huh, this is really interesting. So I'm going to share it with you, just so you know how dumb I am. So here, here's the list. Here are the three puts that Paul lays out. And what struck me is that Paul's language here really points to what are the more destructive elements that we face in our Christian walk. Right? So over here, he says, put these things on. These are the good things. Here, you're going to want to work on putting away those things. You're going to want to put those off. But here, put them to death. Put those to death. Hmm. Those things in the middle, those put away things, those seem like things that we're going to continue to wrestle with on a day by day, hour by hour basis. Those are kind of the struggles of daily life. But we're to put to death those things on the left. So if we're committed followers of Christ, if our goal is to become more Christ like, we should not even mess around with sexual immorality. We shouldn't mess around with impurity or passion or evil desire or covetousness. Those are sins which strongly pull us away from faith. And how do we know? Because Paul refers to them as idols. We can become so distracted by and attracted to the desires of the flesh, sex outside of marriage, lust, 
homosexuality, pornography, covetousness, which is harder for us to detect sometimes. Those things that apparently are lower things, those aren't the higher things Paul was talking about. These are the lower parts of humanity. We can become so distracted by those that we end up devoting our time and our effort and our energy and our money into those pursuits. And when we put time and energy and money into something, we're worshiping it. That's an idol. And if you take just a quick glance at our culture today with all of the sexual stuff going on, gender identity and, and all the other things, we've made that an idol. And Paul says those things have to be put to death. Which is why he prefaces this section with, if you've been raised with Christ, if you've symbolically died to self and you've been raised to new, forgiven life in Christ, then you should put off the old self and its old ways. And that means the tendency to sin, even the tendency to enjoy sin, to worship sin. And you should put on the new self, where enjoyment comes now from pleasing God and living in Christ and being guided by the Spirit. So the process of walking in a manner worthy includes killing off those things on the left, working to eliminate the things in the middle, even as we're adding on the things on the right. And he ends that list with love. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together, he said, in perfect harmony. And we, we kind of know this to be true, right? If, if we commit to loving someone, and we all know it is an act of will, it is a commitment at times, when we commit to loving someone, uh, we're more likely to forgive them. We're more likely to be patient with them. We're more likely to be compassionate with them, eventually. Now, we're still human, and we still have a great capacity to screw things up. But agape love, real genuine love, is the glue which helps hold us all together. Helps keep us together. It's true for our marriages. It's true for our, our, our birth families. It's true for church families. It's good to remember as we head into the holiday season. Love's important. And where there is love, where there's a commitment to right living based on right belief, when we kill off those lesser parts of our old self, when we, when we fight to minimize the, the middle parts of the old self, and we're trying to emphasize the new self, then we also find peace. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Love and all of those put-on things, that all leads to the peace of God. And in case you missed it, there's kind of a larger theme running through these verses. See that? Thankfulness. Gratitude. Three times in three verses, Paul refers to gratitude. Thankfulness. He, he doesn't want us to miss this. Paul's experienced this, and he desperately wants us to grab hold of the fact that New life offered to us through faith in Christ is life-changing, and it ought to cause us to be eternally grateful. And if we are truly thankful, it's going to show up in every area of our life. We should be thankful that, that we're not having to live with that old self, that person we used to be. We should be thankful that we have power over sin, and we're not in bondage to sin anymore. We should be thankful for the love of a good father. 
Thankful that we're not dependent on man-made religions and philosophies. Thankful that we don't have the, the curse of legalism hanging over our heads. We don't have to worry about what holiday to celebrate or what holiday not to celebrate. That's always a big one this time of year. We can be thankful we, have, we don't have to worry about what to eat and what not to eat, what to touch and what not to touch. You know, it turns out that we can go through a whole week not touching anything, and it won't get us one inch closer to heaven. We're thankful for the Word of God, and we show our thankfulness by reading it, by studying it, by knowing it, by obeying it. That's what Paul means here by letting it dwell richly in us. It has an impact on us. We know it well enough that, that it helps guide us and direct us with the wisdom that it contains. And then apparently, it seems like a natural response for the believer, somehow it gets hardwired in our new spiritual DNA, is the desire to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, you may remember, unless you've intentionally blocked it out, that phrase was also used in Ephesians. Same phrase was used in Ephesians. So we, we know that corporate singing was a regular part of the gathering of the saints. Paul even suggests here that singing might be an indication of the thankfulness of our hearts. It turns out our, our sincere gratitude just kind of bubbles out in song. And notice he doesn't say it has to be on key or in pitch. It just, it just bubbles out in song. Which makes some sense. Jesus said in Matthew 15, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. What comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. Singing comes from the heart. It's a reflection of our gratitude and our joy. Experiencing God's grace should lead to gratitude. And gratitude compels us to live rightly. To follow the leading of the Spirit into, sexual, into spiritual growth. Spiritual growth, uh, which is our sanctification. And we're going to continue to blunder and err and, and sin our way into increasing sanctification. And then we realize anew, all over again, the staggering abundance of God's grace. It does not end. Which is great, because our sins don't end either. Not in this life. But God's grace will not end. And that causes us to be grateful. It puts a song in our hearts. Now, I find this interesting that even in the early stages of the church, it appears that there were different kinds of songs that were acceptable in a church service. The singing of psalms and hymns, these were likely songs that, that had been handed down through generations o over time, likely incorporated from, from temple worship even. I mean, kind of an obvious one, since the psalms were largely written to be songs. They were, they were written to be sung. In Matthew 26, it says Jesus and his disciples sung a hymn in the upper room. And that word hymn refers to scripture. They were singing probably a psalm. We don't know for sure. But in James 5, he says, If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. Let him sing a hymn. So the singing of hymns or psalms was well established even in the early church. And then the phrase spiritual songs likely refers to Newer songs that were being written, perhaps more contemporary songs, as, as the, the, the church was moving away from being associated with Judaism, they began to take on a more distinct Christian designation. New songs were being written that conveyed the new truths that were being revealed, that were being accepted, that were being opened up to the, the converts. And you'll also notice that Paul starts that phrase with teaching and admonishing one another with psalms hymns, 
and spiritual songs. So the purpose or, or the value of singing was and is at least twofold. It was to display our deep thankfulness. Singing just comes from the heart. It's a reflection of gratitude. It was an expression of the joy of the soul. And it was meant to instruct and reinforce orthodoxy. That's why we put such a high value on the songs that we sing, the lyrical content of the songs that we sing. They are meant to teach and admonish not just to make us feel all squishy. They ought to be teaching us something as well. And it struck me, you know, I mean, as good as our sermons are here, I have yet, I have yet to hear anyone walking out of church singing something that either Al or I said that morning. But people walk out singing songs that we sing. Those are teaching. They're admonishing. They're, they're reinforcing. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts. Just this morning we sang, For your goodness, Lord, for the things you do, for your goodness and all the ways you've been thankful to me, I long to sing. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. But then Paul takes it one step further in this whole new life section. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, in, in corporate gathering of the saints, you know, outside of the church gathering, in your homes, in your workplaces, in your cars, at the dentist's office, uh, at the harvest foods, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And give thanks to God the Father through him. So in context, this kind of serves as kind of a vacuum phrase. You know, Paul has listed all of these things that we should do and things that we shouldn't do, how we're to live together in the harmony of love, how, how we're to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, how we're to be thankful, and in case he's overlooked anything, or more accurately, in case we come up with some situation or circumstance that we think doesn't apply to us. But Paul didn't touch on specifically... You know how we do that, right? Well, the Bible doesn't really touch on screen addiction, so I think I'm, I'm okay with how much time I spend on my phone. I mean, Scripture doesn't really cover Twitter attitude. Um, and I'm social media snarky, but from a Christian perspective, so I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure it's okay. It's not specifically addressed. Paul lays out this vacuum phrase to suck up any of our bad excuses for why we think we can do whatever it is we know we shouldn't do, but try to justify it anyway. Whatever you do, in word or deed, whatever. I mean, that pretty well covers all of life. And everything you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it as though he's watching. Do it as though he's given you authority to act on his behalf. As though you're going to be accountable to him all the while giving thanks to God the Father. I mean, that gives us some pretty decent guardrails for our life. It ought to. Now, if we're making any effort at all to put on the things just listed and to put off or put to death the other things just listed, if we're trying to be obedient 
and faithful followers of Christ, then being thankful comes easier. Now, we're still going to struggle. We're all clear on this, right? We're still going to struggle with some of the oughts and some of the ought-nots. But by focusing on putting off the old self and putting on the new self, this new forgiven self, the self that's been freed from the bondage of sin, the self that allows us, with the help of the Spirit, to have compassion and to be kind and, and to be patient, that new self is already more grateful, more thankful, more mindful of the gift of salvation and love that we come from the Lord Jesus, which, which in turn helps us to live in an altogether different way. We grow to be more Christ-like. We have hiccups, we have setbacks. We grow in fits and starts. Many, many fits and starts. But every time we fail, we realize again the amazing gift of grace that's been extended towards us. And then once we realize that, we reach new levels of gratitude. And as we grow in gratitude, it helps us grow in our spiritual walk. We go from grace to gratitude to growth, to grace to gratitude to growth. It's kind of like lather, rinse, repeat, but this is more about spiritual growth. It just, it just keeps going. The circumstances change. The situations change. The names of the innocent or the guilty change, but the pattern remains the same. Which is why Paul can point us to whatever you do in word or deed. Do it in the name of the Lord. Even though there are times you're going to do it imperfectly. There are going to be a lot of times you do it imperfectly. Even when there are times that our words or our, our, our deeds maybe embarrass the Lord. We confess, we repent, we receive grace, we understand gratitude, it causes us to grow and the cycle repeats. And as a result, we get better at not doing the ought-nots, and we're getting better at doing the oughts. And let's be honest, some of those oughts are just as challenging for us as some of the ought-nots. For example, wives. Yeah, this is specifically just at the women. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then there's the other part. <laughs> husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them so al mentioned last week about getting into the meddling section last week that was just a warm-up for this stuff wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives uh, and, and again no doubt you'll remember that this was covered in ephesians too why because we need to hear it again now it's entirely likely, in fact, we, we almost know for sure that Paul wrote more letters than the ones that we have. So it makes me wonder how many times Paul included this admonition, this teaching to all of the various churches that he wrote letters to. I mean, there's at least twice here that we know of, which means it was something of a concern. It was something we ought to pay attention to because it's been repeated. So in context, remember the, the original letter that Paul would have written, there were, no, there were no verse breaks, no chapter breaks. It was all just one long week letter. So we could easily read this as, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. And by everything I mean, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. Do all that in the name of the Lord. So Paul is actively teaching and working against patterns of sin. Sin and rebellion that goes 
all the way back to Genesis. When Adam apathetically, perhaps even uncaringly, stood by and watched as his wife ate the forbidden fruit. Was he allowing her to be the guinea pig? Let's just see what happens here. Let's just see how serious God is about this whole you'll die thing. Did he not care enough to step in and, and, and stop her? Was he just being lazy? We don't know. Probably. Yes, I don't know. We know for sure that Eve was certainly a bit headstrong and independent. She ended up being snookered by the great tempter. And she didn't just fail to submit to her husband, she failed to submit to God himself. The instruction not to eat it came from God. So wives and husbands both need to be reminded on something of a regular basis, apparently, to submit and to love. And to do it in the name of the Lord. Giving thanks to God the Father. Must be a problem with the Greek translation there. I mean, sometimes... Asking a wife to submit to her husband or asking a husband to love his wife. Sometimes that seems like it's just a bridge too far for us. You know, they're not married to my wife or husband. <laughs> you know, I have to be submissive when he's just wrong and pig-headed. <laughs> That's a lot of head nodding right there. <laughs> wow. I'm supposed to love her and not be harsh when it's so clear that I'm right? And she keeps fighting me anyway? Men are smart enough just to smile. Well, yes, to both of those things, yes. And do it in the name of the Lord and give thanks. Give thanks that he gave you someone to love. And even more amazing, he gave you someone who loves you back. This is important enough for Paul to write a couple of times. He felt it was important to include this very specific application of orthopraxy in at least two letters. We need to heed it. We need to remember it. We need to pay attention to it. We need to make that a habit. That's one of those things that we are called to put on. And it's a process of putting on. Paul continues to meddle. Children! Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, I think it's kind of obvious that that there's a period in time where where kids are getting older. Most kids, for a while anyway, they obey because it pleases their parents. Right? They they, they want to be good kids, and they want their parents to be happy, and and they obey their parents because it pleases them, and they don't want to get in trouble. I mean, that's always underlying it, too. But they're obeying to please the parents. But really, the great motivator ought to be to teach them, to train them to obey the parents because it pleases the Lord. And that's a lesson we ought to try to instill in our kids early on. Your obedience is important to me, but it's important to the Lord. This is is the created order. This is how things are supposed to work. But sometimes and maybe this doesn't work in your house, but sometimes the pushback that we get from, you know, two-year-olds or 12-year-olds, we start to take it a little personally. And we need to, we need to be reminded 
that their obedience pleases the Lord as well as us. So our teaching at that point needs to be, remember, you're being called to please the Lord as well as us. And try not to take it personally. It's hard. It's hard. Well, then Paul turns his attention back to men. Uh, And doesn't it seem like we're getting picked on just a little bit here? I mean, wives just got the one thing. Men have got two things here. Paul speaks to men as both husbands and dads. Um, It seems like he's got us in his sights, and rightly so, uh, because Paul reinforces scriptural teaching that men have a God-given leadership role in the family. Men will answer to the Lord for how they lead their families and for how they lead in the church. So we need to be reminded to take that seriously. We need to be reminded to control our anger. We need to be reminded to control our attitudes. We need to be reminded not to be harsh with our wives. We need to be reminded not to provoke our kids so that we don't break them. Don't be so forceful and so heavy as to beat them down into discouragement. It sounds easy to say. There's a reason he has to write this a couple of times. It can be hard. So as husbands and fathers, it turns out we have this great impact on how our wives and kids perceive Christ. If the husband is the head of the wife in terms of God-established roles, not in terms of value or worth or anything else, but if the husband is the head of the wife, and if the head of the husband is Christ then as husbands and fathers, our behaviors need to reflect Christ-likeness as much as we can. To help point our families to Christ, not away from him. There's a lot wrapped up in just these couple of verses here. But Paul goes on, so will I. Let the meddling continue. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Hmm. So after getting all up in our business with husbands and wives, kids, Paul just decides to take on the whole rest of the social and household structure of the day. Now, first off, let's remember that the term bondservant could possibly refer to different kinds of servitude. Perhaps even voluntary might fall into this at some point, but generally speaking, Bond servant was something like an indentured slave. Uh, perhaps money was owed from one person to another, and they weren't able to repay, so they had to work for them without pay as a slave until that debt was paid off. Sometimes it was for a lifetime. Sometimes bond servant referred to um, a person who had literally been bought and sold. They were what we, would, what we tend to think of as a slave. But in every case, the bond servant was literally the property of the owner. Everything the bondservant had, every ounce of energy, every hour of work went to the service of the master. It was total commitment. Isn't it interesting that on several occasions, 
Paul refers to himself and to believers as servants or bond servants. We are to be totally committed to our Lord and Master also. So Paul, in this orthopraxy, this is how you live life according to right beliefs section, Paul says to these likely captive employees, slaves, obey your masters in everything. And you had to know that went over just as well as wives submit to your husbands. <laughs> obey your masters in everything. And not only, not only that, when, when you obey, I want you to obey, I want you to obey not in that smug uh, obeying on the outside but rebelling on the inside kind of way. You know what I mean? Yes, you've all done that. But obey and mean it. O- obey because you want to, not because you have to. Obey with sincerity of heart. At which point we pause and think, well, that just doesn't seem possible. Much less likely. How are we supposed to obey our master's joyfully, willingly. Well, that's why Paul added, fearing the Lord. Obey with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And then he throws in another one of those great, annoying vacuum verses. In fact, whatever you do, slaves, bondservants, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And every area of life. So again, he's taken what was this kind of general concept for the general believer, and he's applied it to the slave-type person, but it has universal application. Whatever you do, in every area of life, slave or free, work heartily as for the Lord. Why? Well, because we know that our reward, our pay, in essence, will be an inheritance from the Lord. He's our real master. Work for the Lord, inherit from the Lord. All those annoying people in between, eh, put up with them. But we're working for the Lord. That's who's ultimately going to pay us. And he's not going to pay us just a living wage. We're going to get an eternal living wage. Salvation here and now, but an eternal inheritance to come. And that's more than going to compensate for your time and energy in this life. You're going to get paid. And then Paul adds the exclamation point. You know, one one more data point for motivation. It may be your boss who is standing in front of you and barking orders in your ear, but you are serving the Lord Christ. Man, that's hard. You are serving the Lord Christ. And for whatever reason, when I was going through this, I kind of had this image of, of a restaurant setting. Go figure. I had this image of kind of a restaurant setting. And, and you know, let, let's say you're, you're an employee. You're towards the end of your shift. It's not been a great shift. People have been, you know, people uh, Your boss has been treating you horribly. In fact, he or she is just a right idiot. Everyone hates them. Everyone dislikes them. And you're just counting the minutes down until your shift is over and you can go home, and then all of a sudden someone comes in and sits in your area. You've got to serve one more person. So in the midst of your angsty, boss-hating, wish-I-could-go-home pity party, you have to go now provide quality, friendly service 
or at least try. Your boss is watching. How are you going to do? How are you going to get yourself motivated to do that? I guess you could pretend that you're literally serving that BLT to the Lord Christ. That's what Paul says. No no matter what you may think you're doing in your job, no matter who you may think you're serving in your job, you're serving, you're working for the Lord Christ. So work like you would for them, for him. Wouldn't that be a bit of a game changer if we all thought that way on a regular basis? Man, whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, fearing the Lord, desiring to please the Lord. And it doesn't matter how fair or unfair we think the situation may be. And here's a hint. Most of life is unfair, whatever that even means. It doesn't matter what we think we deserve or don't deserve. But to be obedient and to walk in a worthy manner means that regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstances, Whatever we do in word or deed, we're doing it in the name of the Lord and giving thanks. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And when we do, we know that our, that our, our obedience will be rewarded with an, inter, an eternal inheritance, which helps a bit. You've got to work yourself up to that. It helps a bit. I mean, we'd like to see some satisfaction here or now, but future recompense is pretty good too. I mean, we'd sure like to see the bad guys get their comeuppance now. We'd like to see the boss have his manager yell at him. But that's why Paul adds then, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. So here's a slight spin, a slight different take on that same situation. When we obey... As to the Lord, not only will, be, will we be rewarded for serving the Lord, but all of the other stuff, like the task of setting things right, the task of providing fairness, making sure the bad guys pay, that burden is completely lifted from us. That's not our job. That's not in our job description. We do our jobs working as unto the Lord, and he takes care of everything else. We have to answer for us. We answer for our actions and our attitudes. They're going to answer for themselves and how they treated people. And God is the ultimate judge. Now, there's an interesting chapter break there. Um, It seems a bit out of place. Chapter 4, verse 1 is the the master's verse. Um, That seems like it continues the conversation that was started before. So we're including that here, where it says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. So we could... Again, this master-servant thing doesn't quite fit our culture, but we can certainly look at this in terms of just bosses or managers or, or whoever. Treat your servants, treat your employees justly and fairly. Treat your people well. Remember, you also have a master in heaven to whom you will answer. Now, some of Paul's instructions in these sections lose a little something in context because our culture is so different today. Back then, wives were... were Treated slightly better than slaves, probably. I mean, they were still mostly considered property at the time. So for Paul to say, husbands treat your wives well with honor and respect and dignity and love them, I mean, that was groundbreaking stuff at the time. 
And then to ask wives to willingly submit to their husbands rather than submitting out of fear, but to do it for the Lord, that likely rattle a few cages. It's still rattling a few cages. Everything about this teaching was and remains countercultural. But the Lord's ways are different than our ways. His plan, his model for creation was perfect. And he calls us to continue to seek after that, not to settle for anything less. And we, we, can, we can help do that by embracing the new life that we find in Christ. The life that was intended for us from the beginning, a life marked by compassionate hearts and, and kindness and love and thankfulness. Three times in these three verses, Paul mentions thankfulness because true, genuine thankfulness brings the peace of Christ. And the peace of Christ makes all of these things easier for us to do. Never easy in this life, but easier. We've said it before through this series of Paul's epistles in this year, that the orthodoxy part can be challenging. There are things there that we don't really fully understand. But understanding what we can about the Bible reveals the character and nature of God, and, 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 and it reveals more clearly what he asks of us And so if the orthodoxy part is hard, we know that the orthopraxy part is really hard. Putting this knowledge to work, walking in a practical way in the wisdom that has been revealed, I mean, it ain't for the weak. But we will receive an inheritance as our reward. We can live in the joy of God's will now and we can benefit from his grace and his love and his inheritance forevermore. That's pretty good motivation. Let's pray. Father, I know we say this a lot, but it's no less true. We, we are in awe of the, the wisdom, the, the depth that is found in your word. And even when it's, it's repeated from one book to the next, it's there because we, we, we know it is fundamentally foundational true and it's calling us to live higher to live better to live more in line with your will and we continue to pray lord that as we leave here and go out into the the workplace into our homes and our our friendship circles and family over these next weeks uh coming weeks especially through the holidays lord that that we would get better at living these principles out that the the orthopraxy part would continue to take root we would grow in our understanding of that that cycle of grace and gratitude and growth. That even when we fail, we can confess. We can ask for forgiveness. We can experience your grace again. And we feel a, a renewed gratitude. We have, a, we have a day set aside for Thanksgiving. Lord, I pray that this next week or 10 days really gives us a, a, the opportunity to focus on what that means as just a, an everyday believer in Christ. What that means to be thankful, truly thankful for what you've done for us. Help us Know that, feel that, follow up on that, act that out in new ways in the weeks to come. And thanks again for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.